0: I came just yesterday to it all and I the of life examined. time can't be hello
1: out there t- welcome to another episode of things this I learned God while learning other things this is an attempt by me Joe Moran, and my brother Js to provide you with a series of interesting informative educational yeah we hope enjoyable stories. That will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today we introduce, I fought the law, second extra time. We're dealing with General Noriega, pineapple face. He fought the law and the law won. We're in the second extra time now, so let's roll. 17th century British philosopher Thomas Hobbes had a bleak assessment of the nature of man. Yes, he did. He was no optimist, was Hobbes. No, he was not. He wrote The Condition of Man is a condition of war of everyone against everyone. And if that's true, fighting the man, opposing the law, will prove inevitable. And if we all be outlaws, then the toughest, baddest, cruelest man eventually will emerge and win out, but not forever. You know, the laws of entry uh entropy will ultimately rule you know prevail all, over all of us fighting the man fighting authority fighting the law will mean only one thing at some point in time many a man will have no recourse but to look back and admit with both a sense of regret and to a you know to a high degree of certainty that ultimately he had fought the law and the law had won or even worse recognize you know, the the masked intruder version that had gotten closer to the truth with, I, you know, I fought the law and the law beat the shit out of me. You know, one illustration is the rise, the rain, and the fall from power of General Manuel Noriega, known throughout Panama forever as Pineapple Face. You know, not that many years previously, John Fogarty of CCR had written the lyrics to the hit song, you know, the frame of which is someday never comes. And it is not clear that General Noriega ever was familiar with this rock classic, but there is no doubt he behaved as if it were true. I'll try to demonstrate that with the passage of time, his day would come. First, however, some background might be helpful. As a country, the USA, we we have had a rather shocking, sorry propensity to, and a record of, of finding common cause with and profit in doing business with brutal, amoral, dangerous men with an innate capacity to do whatever it takes to maintain dictatorial rule and power once they have found their way and fought their way to the top, the power. Proves just too intoxicating. You know, proving the truth of Lord Acton's axiom that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Staying in power is a ruler's primary objective. And as for the nasty guys with whom the U.S. has done business over the years, FDR once joked, though I don't find it all that humorous, that he may be an SOB, but he's our SOB. I mean, do we have to deal this way? And over the decades, we've dark, we've partnered with some real, you know, not fictional, real men in black. Men of very dubious character. You know, Batista in Cuba, Somoza in Nicaragua, Ferdinand, Marcos in the Philippines, Mobutu, the iron-fisted madman who ruled Zaire for 32 years. Augusto Pinochet in Chile, who disappeared people. And he and his people, if he thought them subversives they tossed him from helicopters over the ocean. That was the favored go-to instrument of state terror as administered by General Pinochet's military regime. Then, of course, there's... Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, former Shah of Iran, and his notorious, terrifying, tortures Savik, the you know, the secret police terror squad. I mean, we, we can agree up front that Ayatollah Khomeini, whom followed him, was way, way worse. A weird, wicked, psycho, a highly disturbed man, but at least he was never our guy. I mean, we made nice with Muhammad Zia ul Haq in Pakistan, Syngman Rhee in North Korea, President Suharto of Indonesia, whom ruled that nation for thirty years, and and what's really amazing is Suharto, despite a measly salary of twenty one thousand dollars per year, was ranked in nineteen ninety seven by Forbes magazine as the fourth richest man on planet earth. Somehow he had acquired an estate valued at a cool 16 billion dollars. And that is very very hard to do on $400 a week. Yeah, it is. Now now it is at you know at this point at long last we bring to the fore the Panamanian strongman turned dictator General Manuel Noriega. And we intersect him in crossword puzzle-like fashion, together with Bobby Fuller and I Fought the Law and the U.S. Marine Corps. It It is an interesting intersection. A little history lesson. U.S. intelligence and State Department officials made the decision to deal with Manuel Noriega. At the time, he was seen as a young rising star within the military ranks of of Panama. He was he was judged to have the potential to someday be be both a somebody and to be our guy. Yeah. That's what we thought. Like like a Graham Green character and you know our man in Havana sort of thing. We need only groom him properly. That was our thinking. And we considered him a valuable asset, a valuable CIA asset. And this later would prove to be a massive failure on the part of our foreign intelligence experts and a demonstration of faulty judgment on the part of the professionals in the U.S. State Department as well, who misread completely the trustworthiness of Noriega and whom should have known better than to trust such an unsavory character as proved this guy. Untrustworthy assets always have a find. Always find a way to mutate into liabilities, you know. As as you're going to be able to see from what follows here. I mean, let's the particulars. Beginning in the, in the 1960s, the late 1960s, Noriega became one of the caa's most valuable intelligence and most valued intelligence resources. He was he was a judge by. U.S. officials as a trusted conduit for the illicit weapons, military equipment deliveries, and cash that was destined for U.S.-backed forces throughout Latin America during the extended Cold War period and the proxy wars that were being fought throughout the Americas. You know, as Noriega was promoted through the ranks to a general in the Panamanian Army, the U.S. was paying Noriega, at the same time, a very generous allowance, annual allowance for his provision of you know trusted, clandestine advice and services of all sorts, of all kinds. And those services were to include providing evidence against drug trafficking, but strong evidence surfaced that at the same time that he had been tipping off senior drug lords as to the U.S. DEA's next moves, th- thus thwarting our efforts. And over time, it, became, it really became unclear what side was Noriega actually working for. And, and the answer was probably both. Double dipping, as it were. A most dangerous game. But the rewards were just too good for a most avaricious, true Banana Republic dictator. No way was the general going to let this opportunity slip through his greedy, sticky fingers. It was just not going to happen. And unsurprisingly, as these affairs tend to go, Noriega soon believed he was worth far more than we were paying him. And the general wanted a raise. And he insisted on a big raise. He felt he had a coming, that he had earned it the old-fashioned way, so to speak. He suggested also that he had other options. And as is commonly the case with duplicitous people, as part of his bargaining strategy, he became a bit flighty. You know, his loyalties appeared to be up for sale, available to the highest bidder. And within a short period of time, and quite predictably, Noriega outright demanded he extorted from the U.S., is increased salary. And, and demonstrating a vulnerability to threats and hardball tactics, you know, as Nor- Noriega did to us, we did the worst possible thing that can be done in any such situation, you know, any such negotiation, you know, in which one is feeling threatened, you know, we need, you know, so we blinked. And then we caved. And we doubled the general salary. Now, we naively believed that having met the general's salary demands, we had purchased his loyalty to our interests. The truth is, though, when bullies find their demands are met, Their demands increase. They do not decrease. And Noriega was, if nothing else, stereotypical in this regard. And who might blame him? In free markets, the price mechanism produces that price which the market will bear. The general General simply was testing the waters, testing the pricing function. And that's how these things work in all aspects of life. And you demonstrate weakness, you will be exploited. And that's the way things work. Human nature being what it is, what it always has been, and what it's going to be in the future. Even a pope was once quoted as saying, justice, justice, it is the advantage of the stronger. Cynical? Maybe. But that doesn't mean it wasn't true. You know, Churchill's dictum that the British government would never, never yield anything under threat. And never means never. Never give in to a threat. Because once you are known, well, you're you're known. It's Hawthorne's mark. You know, it's the scarlet letter A. You know, as mafia types in the U.S. know all too well. And have known for years. Decades. It's funny how often bought guys don't stay bought. You know, stepping farther back for a moment. in, In 1968, Omar Torrios had had toppled the, the Panamanian, Panamanian president, um, uh, Arias, in a coup. And he he promoted a young General Noriega to chief of military intelligence. Then, then went to Rios... Uh, died in a rather mysterious plane crash in 1981. Noriega moved decisively. Yes, he did. He maneuvered cunningly and he established and consolidated his power, becoming Panama's de facto ruler by 1983. The man whom nicknamed himself Alman, the man whom was derisively dubbed by detractors as Pineapple Face due to his pockmarked skin, saw that... You know, unfortunately for him, his moniker would stick with him for the remainder of his life. <laughs> As an aside, in, in October of 2014, uh, in a California lawsuit, a judge dismissed it. You know, it had been filed by Noriega's representatives protesting the use of his likeness and the pineapple face moniker in Call of Duty, the video game. Proof that, you know, that his nickname is going to last longer than did Noriega. Anyway, after 1983, his power was not uncontested, but wherever he saw political threats, he dealt with them ruthlessly. And not uncommon in situations when a very bad guy takes over a country, what develops is a a Gaddafi-like power freak who runs rampant over the very people he's arguing that he's there to protect and and, and does all within his power to extend both that power and his personal wealth. Need a model? Hmm. Think Putin for a moment. Anyway, Pineapple Face would become notorious for his crazed Colonel Kurtz-like, wild-style, unpredictable behavior. He'd brandish a machete while making defiant nationalist speeches. And he was living large, you know, a, a, a libertine lifestyle with luxurious mansions, all of it funded by illegal drug trade booty and hyper-stoked up via cocaine-fueled parties, at which he was a regular. El Man could often be seen wielding a wide variety of weapons wherever he traveled, you know, have gun, will travel sort of thing, unashamedly proud of his extensive collection of antique guns. And this is just what is needed in a crazed cokehead dictator. Pineapple Face was a very scary guy indeed. He led a, a very quirky life and when interacting with quirky unpredictable, dangerous men. It is indeed a very tricky, dicey situation. I mean, for how does one, how should one respond when a gun-toting or machete-wielding, coke-fired-up dictator nonchalantly asks, hey, 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 would you like to see my collection of teddy bears? Whoa, this is a very, very weird situation indeed. Especially when when you go with him and you notice the hairs on your arms are standing up on end when you catch sight that pineapple face has had some of his beloved teddy bears outfitted with paratrooper uniforms. <laughs> you know, on a more macro global front, the USA sat back and watched as General Noriega was soon running guns to socialist rebel guerrillas, you know, serving as a double agent for Castro and Cuba and selling Panamanian passports at $5,000 a crack for use by Cuban secret agents and possibly agents of other Soviet bloc nations. No, no, no Nobody's quite sure. But the U.S. State Department was convinced he was selling, he was, you know, selling U.S. secrets to our enemies. Now what? That that was the operative question. And as the U.S. began to take steps to show the extent of its satisfaction with Noriega, he responded aggressively by organizing demonstrations in Panama against the U.S. He would grip machetes at a rally and he would appear completely unhinged as he addressed the crowd, declaring as Stalin had so famously ordered his troops as the Nazis closed in on Moscow in November 1941, you know, Noriega would yell out, not one step back you know whether it's not clear whether noriega knew he was quoting stalin i mean this is still unknown what is clear though was not one step back that slogan began appearing on billboards all over panama city and we know who was responsible for that and then noriega began referring to himself as the maximum leader Uh uh-oh you know, this strikes of of Mao, uh, Pol Pot, Stalin, Idi Amin, and as and as as I've only learned recently, U.S. Republican Senator uh, leader Mitch McConnell, who demands that people refer to him as the leader, Whew. and other random cokeheads who appear to have lost perspective. Anyway, with the passage of time. Noriega turned ever more vicious with respect to political opponents unleashing his feared anti-riot squads his dobermans he referred to them he he unleashed them on demonstrators and th- these activities conducted as he was in the process of amassing incredible personal wealth in a country noted for its incredibly high levels of poverty. I mean, U.S. authorities believe Noriega had managed to secrete, hidden away, between 250 and $500 million of assets, an incredibly large haul to have acquired, you know, 40 years ago um, in the 1980s, all while slaving away in a small country the size of Maine. Hmm. As evidenced by all recorded history, human nature has yet to show any signs of changing basic instincts. Noriega was convinced he was beyond accountability. He believed himself invulnerable within the netherworld in which he operated, always in the shadows of legitimacy he was a sinister feared head of state as well as a drug dealer money launderer crook and cokehead he and he delved ever more deeply into coordinating his efforts you know you ever getting more closely with the various powerful uh, south american drug cartels you know serving as a you know the controller of a transit center for drug trafficking and establishing panama as a haven a nexus point for money laundering from around the world. And the money in this activity was just so good. Now, now beyond being a very dangerous man Noriega was an embarrassment to the US and he demonstrated no willingness, in fact, he exhibited no interest whatsoever in helping America win its never-ending and certainly futile war on drugs, because because Noriega was engaged in coordinating the drug drug distribution activities with the major drug cartels and getting monstrously rich in the process. Uh, You know, American authorities, um, the CIA, the U.S. State Department officials, and DE agents all had cautioned, then warned the general he had better stop all this drug smuggling business as he was surely, surely digging his own grave, that he needed to conform to the laws and norms as we had established them, and we expected him to adhere to, we being the U.S.A., and in, and in this case, the norm, the law, we were the man. And he needed to comply now. One of the primary reasons one can't be doing drugs while in rehab is because one can't stop doing drugs while doing drugs. It's a waste of time to even try. And Noriega, he wouldn't stop doing what he was doing because he couldn't stop what he was doing and he didn't want to. So Noriega wasn't having it, and he decided to blow us off. The CIA, the State Department, and the DEA. Screw you is what he told us. Noriega had taken the measure of the U.S. before, remember, and found us wanting, that we were spineless, that we were all talk, no action. Yeah? Well, what are you going to do about it, he asked. And the answer, as General Noriega saw it, was the U.S. would do nothing. That's what the U.S. would do, nothing. Nothing. So he fought the law. And in December 1989, a very, very frustrated American president, George H.W. Bush, finally had had enough time to throw down, as it were. Out, damn spot, out. You know, the quote famous line from Shakespeare, or Lady Macbeth. The general, he had to go. And he had to go quickly. Personally, familiar with General Noriega, President Bush... In a previous incarnation, you know, he had been the head of the CAA. And, and knowing the general to be the man he was, Bush, Bush believed he had no option, no choice. As on schoolyard playgrounds, bullies know and respect only one thing and one thing only, force. And Bush was going to show him force. Bush ordered Operation Just Cause be made operational. And it is here, at the end of the second extra time of I Fought the Law, that we are now going literally to the shootout. This is where, and it is at this point that we will bring our final episode of I Fought the Law, the shootout, featuring the U.S. versus Panama, where Bobby Fuller and I Fought the Law collide with General Noriega. Hey, I hope you will listen in. Hope you enjoyed. Bye-bye.
0: become a new man I promise I will and I know that I can When did the skies change When did they turn black How am I I ever gonna get myself myself back The sea's now boiling and I'm getting cold I've lost my sails Got to find a way home Alone in my boat I think Lost in a drift on the high seas of life. Years from tomorrow, days from the land. Nothing can save me unless fate lends a hand. Storm, it is worse than life, no control. The wind and the waves are taken. I look to the stars, there's none I can see I'm afraid fate, she has answered me Only moments my story will end There was a story I wanted to send Oh, how I dreamed for the calm of the sea A beautiful face smiling back at me The sea is boiling and I'm getting cold I've lost my sails, got to find a way home When did the skies change, when did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat, I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life when did the skies change, when did they turn black? How am I ever going to get myself back? Alone in my boat, I think of my wife. I'm lost in a drift on the high seas.